Welcome to episode 5.2 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm your moderator, Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, and with me today are Marie Hawes and Sarah Morrow-Cernelia. Hi, everyone. Hi. Hello. Let's introduce ourselves just in case we have any new listeners this time around. Marie, you go first. Hi, I'm Marie Haas. I'm a PhD candidate in Renaissance literature at Florida State University. I came to Renaissance literature sort of by the way of 18th or 19th century English literature, which was the focus of my master's program at James Madison University, where my master's thesis was on representations of femininity in Gothic novels. And that's one reason that I'm interested in Alien, which I'll talk about today because it can be seen as a sort of modern Gothic film. Hi, I'm Sarah Morrow-Cernelia. I am currently living in High Point, North Carolina, where I teach high school literature to seniors, or well, literature to high school seniors. Uh, when I'm not doing that, I am also a doctoral candidate at Florida State University, specializing in restoration in 18th century drama. Victoria? Thanks, Sarah. Uh, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. I am coming to you from Waconia, Minnesota. Uh, I am an adjunct instructor in sociology and English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. And like Sarah, I am currently completing uh, a dissertation. My dissertation is on young adult novels that adapt Shakespeare for girls. Uh, So I'm really interested in uh, issues of girl culture and how girlhood is portrayed in the 21st century, which is why I'm going to be talking about... uh, the film that I have chosen for today, which I will tell you a little bit later. Uh, But first, in our previous episode about feminism on television, Sheila mentioned the Bechdel test for women in movies, Uh, and that's going to be our starting point today since we are talking about feminism at the movies. So, quick review of the Bechdel test. To pass it, uh, a piece of culture must first have two women second, have those two women speak to one another, and third, have that conversation be about something other than a man. Uh, Since its codification in Alison Bechdel's graphic novel series Dykes to Watch Out For in 1985, the test has been broadened in use uh, for more than just films. And it's relevant to our discussion today, not just because we're talking about feminism on film, uh, but also because of some other recent developments. Uh, In 2013, a group of Swedish theaters created a rating system based on the Bechdel test. And also in 2013, there was a marketing study of the 50 highest grossing films of that year that determined that the ones that passed the Bechdel test made more money than the ones that didn't. So what do we think about this, ladies? Why is the Bechdel test uh, so appealing to so many people? I think that part of the reason why it appeals to so many people is that it um, is that it looks for female characters who break out of what we would conceive to be traditional um, traditional roles in cinema or in visual arts. Even if we go back to the history, dramatic history, and we think about... Um, the define some of the defining characteristics of tragedy versus comedy, for example, the traditional ending of a comedy is that it ends in marriage or the prospect thereof, which would almost have to mean that at some point characters on stage, male or female or both, are going to have to 
talk about the opposite sex. And so this test pushes back against that at some, at some level. I don't know, Marie, what do you think? Well, I think it's really more about human representation than about fitting or not fitting some set of kinds of roles that female characters can have. And I think the Bechdel test, it's been criticized as being not precisely a feminist test, which is, of course, true. And that's where some of the objections that we see in the articles that are posted online are sort of missing the point in that the Bechdel test is not or if a film is feminist or presenting a feminist view of, of women or of gender, but if women are you know, being represented as in the films, um, these uh, objections misunderstand the aim. Um, as Ellen Tagele said in the article that's linked online, it means that the movie has some kind of representation of, of women in it, and it's not necessarily about the themes or the message of the film. Because we know that humans exist, interact with each other, and those interactions are not always about the opposite sex. And women are half of humanity, so women exist and interact with each other, and those interactions are not always centered around men. So to portray women as existing and interacting with each other in film indicates at least some sort of effort at portraying women as human. Um, Though, of course many films that don't pass the test would also be portraying women as human, but just in that presence, in that representation, um, there's that. So to the extent that believing women to be human is feminist, (laughs) then there's some sort of feminist, larger feminist ideal going on with the Bechdel test, but that's not, they're not, not really dealing with more specific feminist aims or goals in the representation of gender. Um, But that representation the only thing that the test indicates. Um, so I think that overall applying the Bechdel test to a film, whether just in your own mind as you're consuming popular culture or whether it's adopted in this more public way, like uh, these articles discuss about being adopted in Sweden with the film industry, um, at the very least that encourages filmgoers to ask whether or not a film is including female representation at all And if not, why not? Since, again, women are half of humanity, why shouldn't there be at least two women in a film that has multiple characters? And at the level of the industry, some object that this could stifle creativity by forcing filmmakers to keep in mind um, this requirement of having women exist and interact with each other. Um, Well, God forbid they keep that in mind. (laughs) Yes. Uh, But, I, I mean... Of course, I think that if there is a conscious effort on the part of filmmakers to make sure that the film passes the Bechdel test, that could, you know, for most films, I'm not necessarily something like Gravity, where there's only one character, that only one female character by the nature of the film, but for many films could encourage the, uh, the on-screen portrayal, not just of women, but of more than one kind of female character, which is, I think, what you were talking about, Sarah, um, because if there are multiple women in the film and they're presented as human, not every female character necessarily has to carry the burden of representing the entire gender of what all women are. And that can help with going away from the uh, the strong female character that's also you know discussed in one of the articles you have posted online for this episode, uh, this Fia McDougall article. So 
to me, in other words, keeping the Bechdel test in mind when consuming or creating films could encourage the portrayal of women as human and thus humanly variable in the spectrum of characters that they can uh, be in actions that they can take. Uh, wonderful. Thank you, Marie. Uh, you really hit all the points I wanted to cover there about um, why the test is positive, what its shortcomings might be, um, and also some uh, some objections to it. So I think that um, we can transition now into the three films we're going to discuss. And since we're going in chronological order, that means you're up first. Tell us what uh, movie you're bringing to the table and why. All right. Well, I'm going to tell Alien, which is really a classic of the feminist film canon, even though it's uh, you know older than the other films being discussed today. And of course, has uh, some many many criticisms that have been leveled against it, but still remains a classic. Um, Alien is a 1979 film directed by Ridley Scott and written by Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusett. Um, It's a science fiction film. It's clearly responding to films like Star Wars Episode IV and 2001 in its outer space setting. And it's grisly horror. It's also influenced by the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The basic plot of the film is that a virtually indestructible alien creature gets on board a deep space mining craft with a seven-member crew, and it begins killing the crew one by one. By the end of the film, the only crew member left alive is Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver. She finally succeeds in destroying the creature, blasting it into space. By the film's end, only Ripley and the ship's cat are left alive in a shuttle, and the rest of the crew is killed. The larger ship has been exploded in a self-destruct sequence that was one of Ripley's earlier efforts to destroy the alien. And that's the bare bones of the story. Of course, there's, there are more plot elements along the way. We discover the creature may have been some kind of weapon of biological warfare invented by a different alien species. And this sinister company that owns the mining craft has sent the ship to collect a specimen of this potentially very powerful weapon without telling the crew about this mission um, for the use of the company. And to that end, the corporation has placed an android on the crew, the character Ash, played by Ian Holm. And that's the only crew member not to be killed by by the alien creature. I mean, besides Ripley, of course. Because when Ripley and the rest of the crew discover that Ash has intentionally endangered the lives of the crew and that the corporation considers the crew to be expendable, Ash is killed by Ripley and other crew members after he's attacked her. But the main plot of the movie is that traditional kind of horror plot, watching these crew members try to defeat this creature, but dying one by one, facing an uncanny and seemingly unstoppable monster. Okay, thanks for that summary. So you mentioned uh, you called Alien a feminist film classic. I think a lot of feminist viewers would agree. Uh, But why do you think it qualifies as such? Well, the main reason, of course, is the character of Ripley. For one thing, she is the protagonist. And that's a sentence she is the protagonist, that is still rarer than it should be in talking about film. So simply that the protagonist of the film, especially a science fiction action horror film, 
as a woman was fairly groundbreaking in 1979. And added to that, Ripley's character is not defined by being female. This isn't a story about Ripley being an exception to the majority of women or about her struggle to be seen as not like the other girls. In the portrayal of this world, I mean, as far as we see this world, you don't have the idea that Ripley or the other female crew member, Lambert, are exceptions to the rule in doing this deep space mining work and, and on a level that's equal to their male crewmates. And turn some some pieces of dialogue, there may be some sort of subtext of a male-female tension and rivalry in some of the dialogue and the way it's performed, but the situation as a whole sort of assumes a gender parity, and that's pretty important in uh, the presentation of Ripley's character. And I think that part of the reason we get this feeling from the world of the film, beyond you know the way that the characters interact with each other on screen, is that the script, at least in its first draft, was written with unisex characters, O'Bannon and Shusit, uh, intentionally did did not specify the gender of any of the characters. All of the characters are addressed by their last names, which aren't gender-specific names like Ripley or Dallas or Lambert or Ash. And all of the characters are written as members of the crew and as pieces of the plot, not as genders. So this allows a focus on the character before a focus on gender. When Ripley is cast as a female character, then, though of course the script went through rewrites after that as well, the core of her character is already in place as a character who is herself central to the plot, but whose gender is not central to the plot, um, or to her character, really. And so that's so rare for female characters that it alone places Ripley in a special category. But, um, of course... Though Bannon and Shusett wrote the character of Ripley as unisex along with the other characters, they actually did not envision Ripley as being cast as a woman. And one reason might have been their desire to avoid the final girl trope, something you, Victoria, discussed uh, last episode. And that's one criticism that has been leveled against you know Ripley's character in Alien. And the final girl trope, which was written about most famously by Carol Clover, in the 1992 book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film. You have in a horror film, at the end of the film, only one girl left to confront the monster or serial killer or whatever menace is going on in the film. Now, generally, this girl, in contrast to the other female characters in the film, is presented as more sexually pure. So her survival, or at least her being the last to die, often contributes to this common horror film subtext that the other female characters are being offed by the monster or killer on some level because they are sexually active. Um, that their deaths are fitting punishments for their sexual transgressions. And of course, this is a very disturbing subtext of you know many films. So Ripley fits the final girl trope in that she's the last alive to face the monster and in that the viewer's identification by the end of the film is more, you know, on Ripley's side than anybody else's. But, um, she doesn't have this subtext of being more sexually pure than other female characters that, that the monster is killing, uh, since Ripley as well as the other characters aren't defined by sexual choices. 
There was at one point a version of the script in which Ripley and Dallas are shown as being in a sexual relationship, which would have broken this trope even more. But um, but really, I, I prefer the final version in which none of the characters are defined by sexual actions. Of course, this uh, doesn't exclude the eroticization of Ripley, especially in their final confrontation with the monster. And... Um, her being a damsel in distress, at least at some points, even if she ultimately does destroy the creature, but at least she doesn't fit every aspect of that final girl trope. Yeah, it's it's true. She does complicate that a lot. Um, did you want to talk about clothes at all? I, I know much has been made, even in, in feminist discussions of the film, um, of uh, those tiny white undershirts and some other things. Uh, did you have anything to say about that? Uh, yeah, um, like I mentioned her eroticization, which I'm thinking of as being particularly evident in that final sequence that I think you're thinking of where she uh, partially undresses in preparation for going into stasis before she discovers that the alien creature is on board the shuttlecraft with her and she has to get into the space suit and blast the creature into space. And yeah, really there's no plot reason why Ripley could not, in the plot, notice the alien being on the shuttle before undressing for the camera and having us, you know, look at her very skimpy outfit. Um, and it's pretty obvious that that sequence or, or that costuming in that sequence is just there for the viewer who is assumed to be male and that this is the male gaze in action, which, of course, is not to say that you can't have female characters in films who have, you know, not very, uh, who have pretty revealing outfits or no out, no costumes at all um, for, you know, good reasons within the film or in the presentation of the character. Um, but in this case, there's not really that good reason. Um, so you do have that. And um, some of the other objections uh, that, have been made to Ripley would be um, that she might be one of these strong female characters that are discussed in the uh, the article online. But she does avoid some of the pitfalls of the flatness and sometimes the counterproductivity from a feminist point of view of some strong female characters just because, again, the world of the film doesn't present Ripley as strong in contrast to some weak norm. Of course, the film itself might do so in having this contrast with the portrayal of women in other films, uh, but not within the world of the film itself. It's not like she's not like the other girls. She's just there as a character, as herself. So she is, of course, strong and female, but not necessarily in that contrast. And another objection against uh, the film uh, or the feminist elements of the film could be, of course, that while you have Ripley as this complex protagonist acted so well by Sigourney Weaver, she's still a character that's written and directed by men um, and that's arguably acting out male fantasies, not just in her eroticization for the male gaze, but in the overall kind of movie that she's playing a traditional like a traditional male role but still a traditional role and with the gore and violence and physical conflict 
And I personally tend to avoid characterizing any genre as actually appealing only to men because, of course, that's, you know, obviously false. Um, but you, you could still say that the film, like the majority of films, is created primarily with the male viewer in mind. Um, that could be an objection against it as well. But still, with, with the representation of women in Alien, um, you at least you at least have that representation. It passes the Bechdel test. In fact, Alien is the film that's mentioned in that original comic strip titled The Rule, in which we have the Bechdel test laid out. You have the two women talking to each other, and the one who objects to going to films where you don't have... Uh, where you don't have the two women who talk to each other about something besides a man, says the last film she's seen is Alien, because you have the two women who talk to each other about a monster, and there's her evident enjoyment of that element of the film. And that's certainly here in uh, in Alien, and one reason um, why it does, uh, it is a part of a feminist canon, and that in passing the Bechdel test, it does present women as human. Um, So there is that. Of course, uh, there's this whole other element of why why Alien would be considered a feminist film with um, that that does rely um, on the importance of Ripley's gender not to her character but to the themes of the film, with the themes of pregnancy and childbirth, and you have these with you know the claustrophobic settings and of course the chestburster alien. Um, the correlation between this alien you know, incubating within a human and uh, a child incubating within a human. Um, and you have these elements that make Alien a gothic story. And these are related to Ripley's gender, even if they're not central to Ripley's character. And that's one uh, aspect of the film that's been explored in feminist criticism. And that's laid out more in depth and perhaps more bluntly in Prometheus, the 2012 installment of the Alien franchise and the other one to be directed by Ridley Scott. Uh, Incidentally, Prometheus also more clearly connects these issues to questions of religious faith, which you can see as sort of latent in Alien, but not, again, as blunt as in Prometheus. So that's that's another aspect of Alien that... uh, has contributed contributed to its interest in uh, feminist criticism, the gothic elements. Great, thank you for that uh, really nuanced, interesting discussion of the film, uh, and thanks for talking about Prometheus too and ex- extending those themes uh, forward a bit for us. So, let's move on uh, from a more second wave entry into. Uh, the feminist film canon to a more third wave one. All right, Sarah. So you're talking about a film that has a very different kind of female protagonist. Could you give us first a brief summary of Legally Blonde? Sure, Marie, I can do that for you. And I just have to follow up by saying, um, I only hope that I can do as much justice to, uh, to this film as you have done to Alien. That was a very impressive uh, an impressive reading of the film, and I hope I don't totally embarrass myself um, at this point. <laughs> that was really amazing work, and I, I hope I hope I can I hope I can do something similar. Um, but to give uh, to give you guys 
a little bit of context. Um, Legally Blonde was a movie that came out in 2001. It was directed by Robert uh, Luketic. I might have butchered that last uh, name. And it was written by Karen McCullough Lutz and Kristen Smith and produced by Mark Platt. And it was based on a novel by a woman named Amanda Brown. So in this film, we start with um, a young woman named Elle Woods, who is played by Reese Witherspoon. And as the film opens, she is on the eve of her graduation from UCLA, where she is a fashion merchandising major. She is uh, heavily involved in her sorority, and she's dating the most popular fraternity guy on campus, a young man named Warner. They go out to dinner. She thinks she's going to be proposed to. He instead breaks up with her, citing that since he is going to Harvard Law in the fall, he can't be with a woman like uh, like young L, namely uh, a young, attractive, blonde woman. Uh, basically, I think he actually tells her she is too blonde to be taken seriously as a future politician's wife. L, devastated, um, spends some time trying to figure out her next course of action and determines that the only thing that she can, or the best thing that she can do, is to try to get herself into Harvard Law so that she can win Warner back, which she does. Um, she produces an admissions video for the Harvard Admissions Committee and uh, scores a 179 on her LSAT and moves to... Uh, the East Coast to try to win back uh, the man she thinks is the love of her life. And over the course of um, the movie, we follow mostly her first year in law school, which any of our listeners who have been through law school or have friends who went to law school know can be a trying experience. But for her, this is magnified by the fact that she is um, portrayed in the film as being quite obviously out of place at Harvard Law. Over the course of the year, she, um, I don't want to call this a Bildungsroman um, because I'm not sure that that's an appropriate title, but she uh, comes to learn more about herself to be successful and um, eventually ends up being an intern at a law firm who works on a case that involves actually a, a mur- the murder trial um, wherein the defendant is a sorority sister of hers. And in one of the, I guess, the climactic scene of the novel, or of the movie, rather, she manages to use her thoroughly feminine, uh, traditionally feminine knowledge base to destroy the prosecution's case and uh, to win the case for her client. Um, By the end of the film, we get a wrap-up wherein we are told that she has uh, graduated or is graduating with honors and an offer to join a prestigious law firm. The uh, love of her life has no job offers and, or the former love of her life has no job offers, graduates without honors, and she has become friends with the women who tormented her when she first arrived at Cambridge and is on the verge of being proposed to by the young man uh, who bullied her spirits when she first came to Cambridge. Most of what I am uh, concerned about is um, is actually Reese Witherspoon's portrayal of sort of a third wave character and by extension um, the uh, woman Holland Taylor who plays um, one of uh, Elwood's law professors 
And then um, I, and I am totally blanking on the name of the actress who plays one of Elle's uh, law school classmates. Um, and the character's name is Enid, who is also presented to us essentially as a second wave feminist character. And I'm one of the reasons I initially wanted to talk about Legally Blonde is actually because of Enid, because I feel really uncomfortable about the way uh, Enid is, and by extension, second wave feminism is portrayed in this film. And I wanted to see if actually if you ladies or if any of our listeners could could help me understand what's going on there. <laughs> um, but I don't remember that actress's name. It's Meredith Scotland. Just look is it, it? Okay. All yeah. right. All right. All right. So uh, with that summary of Legally Blonde, you can tell this is a very different kind of film from Alien, and a very different kind of female protagonist. And partly you have Elle Woods being presented in contrast with the, the Enid character that you're talking about. But how do you, how do you see Elle Woods as a female co- protagonist that compares or contrasts with sort of a second wave heroine like Ripley? Well, uh, one of the, one of the, well, there are a couple of things that, that distinguish a character like Elle, I think, from a character like uh, Ripley. And um, if our, if the book chapter that uh, we have been talking about um, by Carol Dole is up online, then, um, then hopefully our listeners can take a look at that. Uh, But one of the things that, that, strikes me first is that Elle Woods is thoroughly feminine. She has long hair. She is always dressed in pink. She is in full possession of her femininity and, and um, girl culture or girly culture, if you, if you want to call it that, as opposed to, as you pointed out to us, a character like Ripley, who even in initial draft versions was not gendered. Um, there is no way to divorce the character of Elwood's from the fact that she is a young woman. And then there's also the premise for the film itself, which is that the initial motivator for Elwood's to try to get into Harvard is to win back her boyfriend and ultimately end up happily married, presumably. Um, and these, in these ways, I think that this film is commenting on, um, other possibilities for for female characters or the ability to try to um, to try to expand notions of what it might be to be feminist or to be successful and a woman um, in ways that um, in in ways that uh, some third wave wants to criticize the second wave for being sort of exclusive in its approach. I'm not sure if that makes any sense. Um. (laughs) Oh, no, no. And I think um, this is related to then the idea that there has to be just one kind of female character being presented. And do you you, you see Elle as maybe not fitting that earlier idea of what that one kind of female character would be, that one kind of strong female character? Or... Do you, do you see Elle fitting the strong female character template that's talked about in the McDougal article or breaking from that? 
Well, you know, I actually, I, I made myself go back through the strong female character piece. Um, and I, there were a couple of things that jumped out at me from the piece that I think we could apply to Elle Woods, actually. Um, and one of them was the quote at one point in the piece that the strong female character has something to prove. But then it goes on to say she's on the defensive before she even starts. And I'm not sure that Elle is actually on the defensive because when we first see her, she is excited about graduating, excited about her dinner with Warner. And only after she gets dumped, does she feel like, you know, does she feel like she needs to move to Harvard? And then only once she gets to Harvard, does she sort of really start trying to prove something? So I'm not sure that that part of the strong female character uh, description applies to Elle Woods. But by the end of the piece, um, when the author says, and if it's okay for me to quote directly, um, rather than writing a strong female character, this author paraphrases, um, paraphrases the performance poet Guante and what he wants for himself. Um, so her paraphrase says, I want her female characters in movies to be free to express herself. I want her to have meaningful emotional relationships with other women. I want her to be weak. Sometimes I want her to be strong in a way that isn't about physical dominance or power. I want her to cry. If she feels like crying, I want her to ask for help. I want her to be who she is. And I think if we take each of those statements and think about the character, think about Elle Woods, I think that Elle Woods does, in fact, do most of these things. Um, she is unabashedly uh, upbeat and true to her California roots, true to um, her affinity for um, all things girly, all things feminine, all things pink. Um, she does, in fact, have meaningful emotional relationships with other women. The movie does pass the Bechdel test, I believe. Um, the relationship that jumps out at me most immediately is the relationship she has with um, Paulette, who is played by Jennifer Coolidge. Isn't that right? Um, yes. Who is one of my favorite actresses um, in those those kinds of roles. I think she's she's a riot to to watch. Um, so, but her relationship with Paulette is, is meaningful. Um, it, and, and is one that is based on, on trust and help. Um, she is willing, Elle Woods is willing to be, uh, weak sometimes, or she is, she gets very upset after, um, after she is, uh, subjected to some sexual harassment in the workplace um, she, where she doubts herself and what she's trying to do. Um, but she ultimately decides to overcome that, which I think speaks to being strong in a way that isn't about physical dominance or power, that instead she finds the, into, the intellectual and the emotional uh, strength to come back from a setback like that one um, and to establish her authority in a courtroom and among her peers. Um, she does cry. Um, and she does ask for help and she does kind of in the same vein of being free to express herself does again, remain ultimately, uh, true to the things that she likes and the things that she, that she feels are important, even as those change. So 
if it's not, if that's not, or if that is what we're supposed to have as an alternative to the strong female character, then I think Elle Woods does present one of these characters to us. Yeah, I think those are great distinctions that you've made there. And that's definitely part of this film's feminism. And um, is there are there any other aspects of how this film is reacting to earlier feminist achievements or movements that you want to talk about or the nature of that reaction and maybe something about Enid? Yeah. Um, there, one of the things that, um, that I am, that I still struggle with, with this movie is in fact the character of, of Enid who is presented as, um, who is presented as as a, a second wave character, and the the scene that always jumps out at me is the one is is a scene in the movie where a bunch of the law students have gotten together for a party, and this is a, a setup for one of Elle's uh, early embarrassments in the movie. She is told that it's a costume party when it's not, and shows up dressed as a Playboy bunny, which we can come back to if we like. Um, but at, at one of the cutaways during this party is a is a discussion between Enid and Warner, and Enid is talking about um, the subliminal linguistic male domination uh, inherent in higher education, and uh, she wants to try to lobby the college to change the term semester to Ovester. Um, meanwhile, Enid is all, also presented to us as a woman who wears uh, pants all the time. She wears uh, particularly uh, dull-colored or monochromatic clothing. Um, she wears no makeup. She, I believe, wears glasses through most of the movie. Um, yep, that's how you know she's undesirable, until Elle starts wearing glasses, and then glasses are fine. Exactly. So... But she's she's treated almost as a joke. And even during the introductions, when the, the law students are, are broken up into orientation groups and are uh, and are introducing themselves, Enid presents herself as a woman who got the group um, Lesbians Against Drunk Driving organized on her undergraduate campus. And I think she says some. I, she fist pumps or something like that, or, or makes a very defensive gesture or something like that while she's describing uh, her actions there, which even the body language in that scene seems to communicate something that is undesirable or defensive or something that is ultimately worthy of, of poking fun at, which is what I've always felt about Enid, that, that she becomes kind of a punchline. Um, and a character like Elle comes in with a different brand of, of well, I don't want to call it a brand, uh, but a different approach to feminism and trumps everybody else. And I, I'm not sure that that, that in, number one, that the essentializing of a second wave approach and number two, that ultimately it's rejection is helpful for for a feminist ideology. So so that troubles me about the movie, and I'm still not entirely sure what to do with that. Um, do you guys have? Did either of you guys have any reads on Enid? 
or another way of, of understanding her because I'm still trying to work through her and, and what the movie's trying to say about it. I do find Enid to be a problem within the context of the film. Um, though before I get into that um, specifically, I do want to say more generally that this is not the only film to have that type of problem, and this is not the only film by this team of writers to have that type of problem. Lutz and Smith uh, not only give us Legally Blonde, but also give us, uh, I think I'm doing this in correct chronological order, uh, Ten Things I Hate About You, She's the Man, and House Bunny, Um, most of which deal in various ways with this second wave, third wave divide, and all of which uh, have been labeled by feminist critics as sort of faux-pop feminism uh, as well. So th- it's interesting to um, to look at a character like Enid, to look at... Um, there are s- There's a s- very similar character in The House Bunny who um, deals in sort of angry lesbian feminist tropes too, though I do not remember her name. Um, and also, I think that you could say that in She's the Man, um, the character that is a substitute for Shakespeare's Mariah, um, Eunice, I think her name is, she's basically a horny nerd, um, really, really broadly drawn, um, and also has some feminist, um, some kind of really broadly drawn feminist tendencies. So Lutz and Smith are guilty of these kinds of reductions on a broad scale in their films. Uh, but onto onto Enid more specifically, the thing that bothers me the most about the way she's portrayed in the film is not entirely that her feminism um, is opposed with L's, because third wave feminism, especially popularly, kind of has to distinguish itself against the second wave at a certain level. Like we have to say there are ways in which what they uh, did doesn't need to happen anymore, uh, both because of progress and because our problems are different than second wave problems, and that's fine. I'm, I'm okay with that. I understand that's a sort of generational growing pains issue, and that's fine. What is not fine, however, is that her objections, um, to the patriarchy and the grounds on which she objects to the patriarchy, um, male-dominated language, uh, choosing not to uh, dress in a stereotypically feminine way, um, on purpose wearing pants. All of these things are valid movements, valid personal choices, personal choices that happen because of um, patriarchal dominance that does still exist. So the fact that those things are sort of just laughed at I mean, go into any college classroom and talk to me about um, who responds to questions and who doesn't respond to questions. Um, Think of how many more times, I deal with this in my class all the time, how many times women uh, preface their answers with things like, I'm not sure if this is right, I'm not sure if this is what you're looking for, but men don't do that. Men just answer the questions. So these are issues, especially in the college classroom, that do still exist, and I, I feel like it's really troubling that they're minimized in the way that they are. Yeah. I would second that, not, still not, not remembering this character. 
or particularly from the film, but remembering, you know, 10 Things I Hate About You and definitely very similar stereotypical portrayals of second wave feminism in other popular films. Uh, that those problems that Victoria has laid out, that's definitely <laughs> one of the main issues going on here, I think. Yeah. Well, and even the names just just got me thinking about this. Even the if the character from that you were talking about was did you say was named Eunice Victoria? Yeah, right. Eunice like, and Enid get gross old lady names. Well, yeah, right. Get names that are decidedly out of fashion that nobody has used in a hundred years. So even you know, so even then you have a name like Enid, which you know, I I have names, not, not any Enids in my extended family, but I have a lot of names in my extended family that are, you know, that are older and that aren't as popular anymore, but even the naming them, even the naming itself seems to suggest, oh, this is passe. This is not something that we need to take seriously because honestly, who in this, you know, who in this day and age, who of the late Gen Xers or the millennials is actually named Enid or Eunice at this point? Um, and if you wanted to talk about naming in that vein, you could also talk about L um, as the name of a fashion magazine, right? Exactly, exactly. L and the, you know, the various names that, um, the various names that L can be a nickname for even then are ones that are still are still popular if that makes sense but yeah exactly l is named after a fashion magazine and um oh gosh what oh now i'm forgetting what was the name of the prep school girlfriend that was played by selma blair, selma blair. vivian right vivian. vivian yeah but even even a name like vivian is is older but recalls you know divine secrets of the yaya sisterhood um you know, Vivian Westwood, a different spelling, um, you know, so it's, it's a distinguished name, but has decidedly different connotations or, or it, if that's the right word, than say Enid or Eunice. Sure. Vivian is, is upper class. Um, it's, it's harsh, but it's harsh in an acceptable way. Cause it's, it's waspy. It's distinguished. Um, you know, Vivian, women named Vivian have tea and wear pearls. Um, women named Enid have a bunch of cats in a tiny apartment. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, so even with subtle things like that, we're saying, you know, this is not something that we need to mess with anymore. That we might be dismissive of, of something that still has valuable lessons to, to teach us. So I'm going to be taking us even further uh, in time to talk about a film that in some markets I think is, is still in theaters. Uh, I'm going to talk about the most recent Disney Pixar film, Frozen, uh, which came out in 2013 and is an appropriation of the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, The Snow Queen. In, in keeping with our discussion of feminism on film, it should be noted that when it was first pitched, the film itself was called The Snow Queen, um, but like uh, one of its Disney predecessors, Tangled, um, which was originally called Rapunzel, and adapts the Rapunzel story, uh, they changed the title to something more gender neutral because they wanted to appeal um, not just to girls who are into princesses, but to boys who are into adventure stories as well. So we go from The Snow Queen to the much more neutral Frozen. 
Uh, and Frozen tells the story of two sisters, Anna and Elsa. And Anna and Elsa live in the kingdom of Arendelle, uh, which is uh, a fantasy kingdom that seems to roughly uh, correspond to, to Scandinavia. Uh, I, I predict that when I'm at Disney World in a few months, the uh, Akershus Pavilion in Norway will, will have a lot of frozen tie-ins. Uh, we'll see if I'm right about that. So we're in this roughly Scandinavian country, and Elsa and Anna are princesses. Um, their parents rule Arendelle. And we find out fairly early in the film that Elsa has a big secret, and her secret is that she has magic powers whenever she gets too emotional, uh, sad or, or angry or frustrated. Um, she can essentially shoot ice out of her fingers and, and freeze things. Um, and we learn almost immediately that this is bad when uh, she and Anna are playing. They wake up in the middle of the night um, and run around the palace playing. Um, Anna asks Elsa to, to make it snow inside, and she does, and, and they're uh, building snowmen and throwing snowballs and having fun, until um, Elsa accidentally hits um, Anna with, with her jets of ice, um, and Anna is, uh, is wounded because she, she hits her in the head, um, and, and so you know, fr frozen, uh, frozen brain is, is not good. So they wake their parents and take her um, to a, a kind of mystical healer, and the parents say, you must hide your power, you can't ever tell anyone. Um, fast forward a few years, and Elsa and Anna's parents die in a shipwreck, because this is a Disney film where parents are not allowed, and um, Elsa and Anna have grown up, they're trying to rule the kingdom, of course, um, Elsa can't hide her power forever. Uh, disaster strikes, and she gets angry and freezes the whole kingdom, and Anna must go and get her and tell her um, to control her power to reverse the spell and unfreeze the kingdom. And then uh, we follow Anna on her journey, where she meets a few interesting and... Uh, important people. She meets Prince Hans, who wants to marry her, and turns out not to be what he seems. She also meets um, a talking snowman named Olaf, who's voiced by Josh Gad of Book of Mormon fame, um, and he's, he's the topic of, of some contention about the film. We can talk about him a little more later. Um, and she meets Kristoff, who's an ice salesman, um, who follows her on most of her journey. Kristoff is accompanied by his uh, mute but incredibly expressive reindeer, Sven, who, if you've seen Tangled, um, is basically the horse, uh, Flynn Rider's horse from Tangled. They pretty much even have the same face, uh, and is, is following this Disney tradition um, from Tinkerbell right on up of incredibly expressive characters that don't actually say anything. So we, we follow uh, we follow Anna to help Elsa and, uh, and and lots of action ensues and I'll, I'll leave it there for now. 
All right. So thank you for that introduction. Um, now, Victoria, I know that uh, we talked about um, a little bit before we went on the air about your reactions to this movie. But before we do that, um, could you talk to me a little bit about the general cultural presence of the Disney princess phenomenon? I know, I know that uh, we've all talked in a group about how familiar we are with the Disney princesses, but Disney princess as a brand um, and its rise to perhaps dominance in, um, in girl culture today. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. Um, so most of the information I'm going to share now comes from a really great book that I think I may have mentioned on the podcast before, Peggy Orenstein's uh, Cinderella Ate My Daughter, The Rise of Girly Girl Culture. Um, and she does have a couple of chapters that chronicle the Disney princess marketing phenomenon. And in one of them, she talks about how the Disney princess brand uh, is born. So the head of marketing for Disney goes one day to a Disney on Ice show. Uh, I'm sure you're, you ladies are, are familiar with this. Um, there are costumed characters who skate around and dance to popular songs from the films. And so uh, Andy Mooney, who's the head of marketing at the time, goes to Disney on Ice and notices something. He notices legions of young girls in homemade princess dresses with homemade wands um, and has two responses. First, uh, oh how cute, oh how wonderful, look at the emotional connection these girls have with the princesses, and then immediately on the heels of that touching thought, um, a less touching one, why aren't we making money off this connection? Look how many products we could produce. Um, if we marketed our own princess dresses, princess shoes, princess tiaras, princess wigs, princess pretty much anything you can slap a princess label on, um, does now exist with the official Disney stamp, and Disney Princess is the highest money-making corporation geared to children ages 2 to 6. Um, he had the idea in 2006, and uh, now seven, almost eight years later, um, we've, we've cornered the market, uh, for children ages two to six. Um, also, this is interesting given the history of the Disney princess on film. Uh, we start in the earlier films, films like, uh, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, and Cinderella, with some pretty passive princesses and some pretty flat princes. Um, there's not a lot of personality, um, but there is a lot of, a lot of dreaming and wishing uh, and, and hoping that happens. Um, you know, someday my prince will come and dream is a wish your heart makes. Uh, we, we've really got focus on wanting, but not a lot of focus on uh, doing to undergird the wanting. Um, but mostly Disney is quiet um, until the so-called Disney Renaissance, which happened in the mid-80s. This is where you get um, Alan Minken and people like that on board, and then you have a new kind of Disney princess, uh, a much more active Disney princess, and um, 
interestingly, given everything that Sarah has told us, you don't get another blonde Disney princess from the 80s um, through the entire 90s until Tangled. Um, and even though Rapunzel is blonde, she isn't entirely blonde because um, her blonde hair is her magic hair and her sort of... Uh, her more empowered hair is brown, so that's interesting. But you've got um, Ariel in The Little Mermaid, who is not an entirely feminist character, of course. The whole uh, literally giving up her voice for a man thing, this is problematic. Uh, but she um, doesn't like her father's restrictions on her life. She wants to escape the undersea world for um, for freedom on land. She wants to um, get out and, and do things and be her own person. Um, other notable post-Renaissance princesses, Belle, um, who I, as a as a brunette child um, who loves to read, really latched onto um, as a kid. Uh, she likes books. She wants so much more than this provincial life, she sings. She wants to escape her small town. Um, she's not while uh, we're told by everyone else that she's very beautiful, and that's, of course, where she gets her name from, she doesn't put much stock um, in the external and instead wants to improve her mind. Uh, feminist critics, of course, have also talked about Beauty and the Beast as uh, basically being about Stockholm Syndrome and, and glorifying abuse. Uh, we, we shouldn't discount those criticisms either, but um, Belle, I think, as well as Ariel, is a step forward from the kind of personality-less uh, Snow White Cinderella model. And the last post-Renaissance princess that I think I need to um, discuss, maybe before we get to the Pixar era, is Mulan, who is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, um, she is non-white. Um, there are other non-white princesses, too, of course, Jasmine from Aladdin and Pocahontas, um, the, the title character of that film, also non-white. But Mulan is interesting, um, in addition to the kind of multicultural credit that she gives Disney films, because um, she is a warrior who presents as male um, and, and fights like a man. And there's some sort of ham-handed gender treatment in that film. But again, um, this is a woman whose immediate goal is not marriage. Her immediate goal is family honor. And to do that, um, she has to negotiate some really interesting questions of what it means to be feminine, what it means to be masculine, these kinds of things. So lots of um, not entirely positive, but at least somewhat positive progressive steps in the post-Disney Renaissance uh, canon. Great, thank you for that. And and I'm glad you mentioned Mulan um, at the school where I teach. The We do an all-school production every year. Uh, so we get the, the four-year-olds through the high school seniors. And this fall's production actually was Mulan. So, um, so that's relatively fresh in my brain, at least. Um, so within the context of this production, uh, Disney princess phenomenon and the trends that, that you have, I think, rightly and very well noted um, in this development of the Disney princess. How do you um, see female community uh, in Frozen in particular, but other recent princess films, if you want to talk about them, uh, within this context of the development of the Disney princess? Victoria? Um, I think that 
female community is something that we should definitely talk about um, in the context of the Disney princess because um, while early Disney films do pass the Bechdel test, um, most of the princess films seem to um, divide women, um, make women type contrast against each other. Um, think about Ariel and Ursula, right? Ariel is um, young and beautiful and vibrant and positive, and Ursula um, is old and fat and dark and bad. Um, lots of criticisms of her character have talked about the negativity attached to her and talked about how she is um, she is raced. She seems um, based on a kind of washed up um, lounge or jazz singer model. There have been articles comparing her to uh, Aretha Franklin at her heaviest weight. Um, there have also been articles, both positive and negative, talking about um, Ursula as a, a kind of drag queen model. Um, and, and that it's interesting that in addition to being black in a certain way, she's also queer in a certain way, but that she, as the villain of the film, adds negativity to these uh, minority associations in a way that should be discussed. Um, even later in Disney films, you've got... Um, the the female villain, the sort of older female villain that wants to thwart the young, pretty femininity of the protagonist, um, someone like Mother Gothel in Tangled is really interesting to talk about because she um, she takes something that could be a female positive motherhood. Um, and turns it into restriction, turns it into uh, deprivation and, and selfishness in that she wants to keep Rapunzel locked up in the tower and, and keep her magic for herself. Well, and even if you go back as far as Sleeping Beauty, right? Um, sure, Maleficent. Yeah, thinking about specifically Maleficent and thinking about your physical description of Ursula, which I had not ever thought about, but is a good point. Even Maleficent, wears a headdress that looks like horns and has a green face and wears black and is surrounded by these demon looking characters. Um, her, her minions are, are these sort of bestial, uh, mostly wordless characters. And, and yeah, her, her whole MO is to try to get, um, it is to try to keep Aurora out of the picture. So. And this is all before she turns into a dragon, right? She screams. Yes. She screams about sending, uh, sending Aurora to hell. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but it's truly terrifying. She screams, yes. about, screams about hell, and and then turns into a dragon. Which I mean, we can we can get biblical on that, right? She's a serpent yeah. and female deception, and and there are a lot of places you can go well, there. And there's even there's even sort of a Grendel's mother kind of thing going on there. You know, like with the physical dragon and the, you know, the the young man, right? Because that's Prince Philip at that point, you know, she says something about all the powers of hell. And that's when Prince Philip is trying to defeat her so he can rescue the princess. And then he's the one that, you know, launches the sword of truth into her chest or whatever it is. Uh -huh. um, but <laughs> yeah, and, and that's what... That's how Ursula dies too. She's penetrated by the trident. Uh, we can. Uh, we're we're gonna. Sorry, listeners. We're not yes. gonna get any more Freudian than that. But we we could. 
Yes. Oh goodness. Anyway. So yeah. So I guess, I guess Disney has their, their favorite modes of, of villainous death. Um, <laughs> Though, they, um, they like I, 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 I do want to mention um, a more positive, more recent <laughs> portrayal um, of Disney motherhood, which is uh, in Brave. You get you get the kind of community yes. in Brave that is missing in a lot of um, fairy tales and a lot of the Disney princess canon generally, because um, you get a mother who is alive at the end of the film, which is something that really does not happen. Uh, the the death toll of of Disney parents, as I'm sure all our listeners know, is pretty huge. Um, we we have a number of characters that don't have parents at all, and we have a number of um, characters who lose parents throughout the course of the film. Not so in Brave, or at least not so entirely. Um, Merida's mother, Queen Eleanor, voiced wonderfully by Emma Thompson, um, is... Uh, first, she is an antagonist, a sort of restrictive mother to Merida, who um, isn't into the whole princess thing, would rather be an archer. Um, there's a, a kind of heavily symbolic scene where before she shoots an arrow in a contest to win her own hand in marriage, because the, the princes who are competing in this contest... Um, she has has chosen archery because she knows that they can't win and she can. So she goes up to compete for her own hand in marriage. And before she can pull back the bow, she has to rip um, the confining bodice of her dress that her mother has has forced her into earlier in the film. So she's literally um, pushing against the kind of courtly confinements. Um, and, and her mother wants her to, to be a lady and be proper. But as the film progresses, not only does Merida learn from Queen Eleanor about why sort of feminine palace diplomacy can be important, um, likewise, Queen Eleanor learns from Merida that her natural pursuits, being outside and learning about the wilderness and learning about the animals, can also be helpful. So you've not only got a mother who survives the entire film, you've also got a mother and daughter who... Uh, recognize each other as people and recognize each other's um, specific knowledge bases to be valuable to them. So that's that's really huge, I think, in the history of the Disney princess and really important um, that you've you've got that kind of female community. And Frozen takes it a step further. Not only do you have really strong, um, knowledgeable, deep, emotional community between the sisters Elsa and Anna, Actually, um, the end of the film, and sorry, listeners, lots of spoilers now. Um, the end of the film, Anna gets hit in the heart this time by one of uh, Elsa's jets of ice. And the, tr- the troll at the beginning of the film who heals her the first time says, Well, uh, you're lucky because heads are easier to heal than hearts. Some symbolism there. Um, so she gets hit in the heart. And, and and what what is going to happen? Uh, this is terrible. And we are told, the trolls tell us, that true love's kiss is, is a cure for what ails Anna. So we, we've got to get true love's kiss to happen. And first, um, they go to Prince Hans, who looks very much like your typical Disney prince, 
Um, like everyone in this film, he has enormous eyes. Um, one one film critic says uh, this is kind of creepy if you if you look at the um, proportions of the character Elsa's eyes put together are are wider than her waist, um, so so maybe we should we should tone down the Disney eyes a little bit. Um, but he he looks like a prince. He's nice. Um, he and Anna fall in love at first sight, of course. And there's this song about how they're falling in love at first sight. Um, but there's a twist. It turns out that Hans um, doesn't love Anna at all. At one point, he scoffs at her and says, as if anybody would love you. And he's very venomous. Um, it turns out that he just wants the throne. So true love's kiss comes not from the uh, dashing, well-coiffed prince, but comes instead um, from Elsa, from the sister. So true love looks entirely different, and in fact is is sort of shoving against um, the the depiction of of true love as a restorative property in early Disney films. So that um, I found incredibly interesting and incredibly progressive. Thank you for that, um, Victoria. And I agree with you. Um, I'm not sure if this is too far off the mark. I know that, um, I know that we've been talking for a while now, but I had a question for you as I, as I was reviewing plot synopses. Um, would you mind clarifying for me? So the, the, the power that Elsa has seems to be brought on by bouts of strong emotion. Is that, is that correct? Yes. Um, Okay. And, and that's interesting. Um, right. There, there, there's a whole song, um, uh, Let It Go, the, the big song from the film. Um, the, this is where I should say that Elsa is, is voiced and, more importantly, sung by uh, Broadway powerhouse Edina Menzel, who most of you might know from uh, Wicked or from Rent. Um, just really, really powerful. And her big song is a song called Let It Go, Um where she she gives in to her power and and lets it come out of her. Um, we've had lots of allegorical readings of this song floating around on the internet. Uh, um, the biggest being um, a, as a, a kind of coming out anthem, a kind of gay anthem. Um, well, when I saw the film, I didn't go there first, um, though I, I I knew that some people would. I thought that um, Elsa's predicament seems to me to be an allegory for depression um, and and the things that that depression makes us do, seal ourselves off from people, um, not do things we used to enjoy. Um, The the part of the film that I enjoyed, um, well, enjoyed is is maybe not the right word, um, because I I sobbed pretty powerfully um, during this part in the theater. I think I was scaring people around me, so sorry, theater people. there's a song at the beginning uh, called Do You Want to Build a Snowman where um, Anna is, is asking Elsa to, to play with her like she used to and she doesn't understand why her sister won't be her friend anymore and, and then it cuts to Elsa on the other side of the door um, really wanting to go and play but knowing that this pa- power that is uncontrollable can hurt people and so she um, continues to to lock herself away so it's this this really powerful look at um at 
why we restrain ourselves and, and what we allow ourselves to do and not do. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't gotten a chance to see the movie yet. I was actually wondering, my first thought, uh, the place I went first after reading the synopsis was the connection between this idea that, that, that feminine emotion is destructive. Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't sure if that was actually what was playing out in the film or if that's another round of commentary that's going, that's going around on the internet. Um, I wasn't sure if you had any thoughts about that. I do think that that is also there. I, I also think that there's a, a kind of undercurrent of, um, of puberty fear um, in, in Elsa's powers as well. Um, they, they get stronger as she gets older. Also, um, her, when she decides to sort of go full Snow Queen and, and embrace her powers, her clothes change, um, they fall off of her, her, uh, her Snow Queen gown is incredibly slinky and, uh, and, and close to her body in, in ways that are interesting. Okay. Um, so I, I do think that, yeah, there is some, um, at least an undercurrent of, um, feminine emotion can, can be scary and can, can ruin things. Of course, you know, we, we've got the cultural stereotype of, of the ice queen, right? This is a term that we use, um, to talk about women who are, too focused, too serious, not emotional enough in negative ways. Um, and it, it's really one of those sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't um, problems of femininity. If you're too emotional, people get hurt. If you're not emotional enough, everybody hates you. Uh, so that that is there and, and worthy of discussion, I think. I was just going to say definitely when I was watching it, I did think about... Um, not necessarily the presence of an LGBT subtext, but the easy applicability of the film to that kind of reading. Because especially with Elsa's concern with keeping a secret or because she is afraid that if her secret is revealed, then she will be perceived as different by her family and by her community and will be rejected for that reason. There's, I mean, that's a very easy connection to make just as... Uh, you have that kind of feel with Marvel's uh, X-Men, you know, same kind of situation. Um, and so I, di- I did definitely think that with especially the Let It Go song, that you can have that be easily adopted um, by people experiencing that kind of situation. Yeah, um, definitely. I, I think that, that that reading is there. Um, another thing I wanted to mention about... Um, the film's cultural presence and the way it puts forth uh, feminine power is in the first long-form trailer for the film, um, the the first film that's the first trailer for the film that's over a minute long. Um, first, you get some exposition, and then you get um, a couple of text cards intercut with um, with different characters, and the text cards say, "Who will save the day?" The ice guy, followed by a picture of Kristoff. The nice guy, followed by a picture of Hans. The snowman, followed by a picture of Olaf. And then the last text card says, or no man, and gives us a picture of Anna. 
So I, I thought that that was really interesting that this is the first wide market full trailer of the film. This is a trailer that, unlike lots of earlier trailers, which focus primarily on um, Olaf and Kristoff as um, as a way to appeal to boy audiences. Um, this is a trailer that spotlights the fact that we are going to have a heroine doing some not traditionally Disney heroine things. Um, so I, I thought that that was really interesting that this is present um, in the very marketing of the film because um, lots of people have criticized the marketing of the film for centering purposefully on more boy-related things. Like, we get much more Olaf, the uh, sort of wisecracking snowman, we get much more Olaf in the trailers than we do in the actual film. The trailers make it seem like he's going to be much more central to the plot than he actually is. So, that's interesting. Yeah, I think so, also. Although, I suppose um, the the way movie trailers are cut could be a totally different episode, because I know, I know that criticisms of, of movie trailers generally... Um, has been a hot topic of discussion um, for many films over recent years. But before we move on to our last segment, um, did you want to comment briefly on the film's ending in particular? Um, I know you alluded to it earlier in your discussion of of female community um, and some of the critiques that have been leveled against this particular film's ending. Yes, I would like to do that. There have been two articles... um, that have had kind of the most media prominence about the ending, and they're both from the Atlantic. Um, So one asks, um, does Prince Charming really need to be reinvented? Nicholas says um, that this reinvention of Prince Charming, the idea that the prince, uh, Hans, in this film is actually its biggest villain by the end, Um, she says that this is a bad move and that this is a bad move because it shames girls' fantasies. Um, it, it tells them that, uh, that they shouldn't want to fall in love and they shouldn't sort of take stock in this, uh, or put stock in this Prince Charming ideal. Um, she quotes a Huffington Post Um, piece that says, we champion the culture of teenage boys every day, giving them all the comic book heroes, sports stars, and porn any human could conceivably consume. Can't we give teenage girls one thing without demonizing them? Um, And and while I do agree that that we should... um, not devalue feminine or feminized things just because they're feminine or feminized, I really think that this labeling of the film as um, as reducing or negating girl fantasy is a misplaced one. And I think that it's misplaced for two reasons. One, um, I don't think that Frozen tells girls not to fall in love. I think that Frozen tells girls um, that love isn't just falling in love with a man, that there are different kinds of love, and that those different kinds of love should be valued just as much as we culturally value falling in love with a man. Um, I mean, I, I think that not just girls, I think that so many grown women in our culture need, need to hear that. Um, also, I I don't think that the film 
devalue uh, I don't think that the author is right to focus on the film devaluing girls fantasies with the character of Hans because I think the twist of Hans being the villain is actually going back to something much older um, in the history of Disney films the Disney films I think when when they're the best and when they're the most emotionally uh, effective and emotionally connected are um, pointing out to us a deep existential darkness in humanity. Um, think of Jumbo hurting the boy who taunts her in uh, in Dumbo, and then being put in uh, basically an elephant insane asylum. Think of Geppetto's deep connection to Pinocchio. Uh, in Pinocchio. Pinocchio is horrible to him, does everything he's not supposed to do, cheats, lies, steals, um, and Geppetto still loves Pinocchio incredibly deeply, goes to find him when he is lost, even though Pinocchio deserves to be lost. Um, these are our deep human connections, and like most deep human connections, contain rich sadness. Um, contain explorations of relationships that tell us that uh, sometimes to love is to lose and to love is to be hurt and these things are a part of humanity. So I, I do think that that really um, framing that twist just as part of the um, part of fantasy, part of um, just the Prince Charming tradition and not other traditions is is reductive and harmful. We will transition into our um, our recommendations portion of this episode, and my recommendation is actually, if Victoria doesn't mind, a piece that uh, she recommended to me and um, provided as as a source for me to uh, use while I talked about Legally Blonde earlier in this episode. And it's a collection, if we haven't mentioned it already on the podcast, um, called Chick Flicks, Contemporary Women at the Movies, edited by Suzanne Ferris and Mallory Young. And one of the chapters in the work, which is uh, written by Carol M. Dole, is, a, um, is about... Uh, third wave feminism and treats legally blonde, um, but I would recommend this work as a way to to get um, to get a relatively recent perspective on issues of uh, portrayals of female characters in in film and what what we might be able to to do with the way these things are being portrayed today. Um, Marie, well, one thing uh, that I might suggest our listeners take a, a glance at without necessarily endorsing all its content is the conversation that's going on right now about the post by Colin Garbarino, who is a professor at Houston Baptist University, about his idea of how Frozen could be seen as a Christian allegory and the responses that are going on to that post. It was actually, I believe, written last month, but just in the last couple of days and even the last few hours, it's been picked up um, by popular news sources. A couple hours ago, there was an article on The Guardian about it. And in his post, in his original post, Garbarino is arguing that Frozen is presenting a Christian message because of the idea that Elsa is giving in to 
the error of valuing freedom above personal duty and that this pursuit of freedom is something that she shares with Satan in Dante's Inferno and leads, in fact, to the same icy isolation. And to my mind, that's kind of missing the point. Is I think the movie is portraying Elsa as primarily uh, positive and is laying the blame of whatever blame there is for her isolation on the uh, the rejection and the fear of people who are different, which is what she faces in her community. And the reason that she runs away um, is her being taken as a monster. But you have uh, Garbarino making this argument in um, in this popular post and talking about how Anna is a kind of Christ figure in rescuing Elsa from her isolation and her unconditional love, which I can certainly see. But what's also interesting in this conversation and the responses is um, that you have well, a Baptist professor who is looking at a Disney film and seeing something besides we have to reject Disney, <laughs> which is you know, an interesting thing in itself. Um, and then all the various conversations about how much can we see a Christian allegory in a work of popular culture that's not blatantly Christian. Um, and Again, to my mind, that's because it's a fairy tale, and the fairy tale by nature uh, is broad and open to multiple allegorical interpretations. So, of course, you can find a Christian allegory in there as well. Um, but so that whole conversation is interesting, and taking a look at that might be one of my recommendations. The other one is, since I was talking about the final girl trope in horror movies earlier, that reminded me of... The uh, the exploration of the problems with that trope that you get in the 2012 movie Cabin in the Woods, which is written by Joss Whedon, who's of course worked, <laughs> explored the problems with the final girl trope elsewhere in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, for example. Um, so that's that's a very fun movie um, if you're dealing with a horror movie tropes and the problems with gender representation that you get with those. Great. Uh, thanks, Marie. I I love Cabin in the Woods. Listeners, you've heard me uh, rhapsodize about, uh, about Joss Whedon's work on this podcast before. Um, that film is a really great exploration of tropes and types in, in film, uh, not just female ones, but male ones too. So great. Thanks for that recommendation. Uh, so I'm going to... Rec- I also have two things. I'm going to recommend Brave, which I have already mentioned today. Um, Brave, I don't think, has gotten as much um, as much talk, as much interest um, as a feminist film, as something like Frozen, um, and I, I think it should. Uh, I think it's, it's really progressive, and, and if you have young girls and, and want to expose them to movies that treat them as girls in different ways, Brave should definitely be a part of that. Secondly, uh, I'm going to go back uh, a ways um, feminist fairy tale responses. My favorite when I was a kid was Robert Munch's picture book, The Paper Bag Princess, uh, in which um, there is a princess who gets tired of waiting around uh, for a prince to save her from the dragon and decides uh, eventually to fight the dragon herself. Um, I, I won't tell you what happens when the prince finally does show up because the ending of the story is uh 
is is just delightful i think for children but if um if the young girls in your life have not yet been exposed to it check out robert munch's the paper bag princess and that i think wraps up episode 5.2 thanks for listening to the christian feminist podcast we'd like to hear from you if you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show or if you just want to drop us a line you can do so at christianfeministpodcast@gmail.com also if you'd like to find these show notes for this and other episodes those can be found at christianhumanist.org for Marie Hawes and Sarah Morrow Cernelia, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Tune in in two weeks for a discussion of Christian feminist parenting techniques. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.